So this morning we are, we have this Sunday and next Sunday um, as we wrap up this series that we have been in for the past several weeks, Love Redeemed. And, and as you may remember, if you're just joining us, this idea that the world has, and, and the enemy really working in and through the world has given us just these really mixed up ideas of, of what love should look like, of what it means to be loved, of what it means to love others the ways that we do that, the ways that we should expect to be loved, or the ways that we told, are told this is what love is, this is what love should, should look like in your life, and the, the things that have been done to, to some, to many of us in the name of love. We, our hope is to, to wrestle back from, from the world this understanding of what love is meant to look like, and, and we do that by looking Absolutely, and, and obviously at the example that we see in Jesus, we began the very first week of this series in, in 1 John, God is love. That is, the, underst- that is the, the foundation of our understanding of what love is, and then we, we see that exemplified in the person of Christ and the work that he did and, and the way that he interacted with others and ultimately um, in the cross. And then we spent three weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this, this passage that is often reserved uh, for weddings, much like the passage that, that Sarah read for us. And there is absolutely, that's applicable for a marital relationship or for a relationship of any sort. But it's not marriage that Paul had in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. It was the church and the relationships within the church. And, and Paul essentially said, look, I don't care what kind of gifts you have, what kind of gifts are, are on display um, in your life. If love is not the foundation of that, then those gifts ultimately amount to nothing. They ultimately don't mean anything. And then begins to tell us this is what instead love should look like. This is how we, we live this out. And this is how our gifts being used in the name of love actually are, are used for the edification and the benefit of the church, not for the benefit of an individual. A gift is never given and, and asked to be used so that that individual gains something from it. It's always meant for the building up of the body. This morning we are invited into a passage that should be familiar uh, for you because it's frankly one of my favorite passages uh, for us to uh, to use as our benediction, for us to hear um, on our way out the door as we are wrapping up on Sunday mornings. Uh, it is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, and I'd like uh, to read from Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. If you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, please stand. For this reason, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
as Pastor Ed and, and Pastor Laura, who's preaching out at Blackburn's Chapel, as we were talking about this passage this week, all of us agreed that really probably the best thing that we could do is to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to open our ears and to open our hearts and stand up and read this passage, invite the worship team to come up, and then we just, we just finish. Because it is incredibly difficult to add anything to the power of this prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And, and my hope and my prayer is that the words that you hear are, are straight from the Lord, that I don't mess up the weight of this prayer by offering something that God does not intend to be offered as we consider uh, the, the value and the importance and the weight of this prayer. <clears throat> the reason that we felt drawn to this, I believe, uh, at this point in the series is because we have talked about what love should look like, what love is meant to look like, the fact that everything that we do, especially especially if you consider yourself a follower of Christ and a part of the church, that everything that we do is meant to be done with love as the foundation. If we are not careful, it is another place that the, the, the enemy and it is another place that culture can come in and convince us that it's just another box to check. It's just another thing that we have to try to be perfect in, that we have to try to achieve, some mark that we have to meet in order to be acceptable to God or in order to be a reflection of Jesus on this earth. And the reality is that on our best days, we still fall short. We said early on in the series, it's like, it's like being told you know, by, by your parent, uh, if you've had a, a a tiff with a sibling, it's like being told, um, you know, to apologize to them. Say you're sorry, or say you're sorry to your mom, or say you're sorry to your dad for, for talking back. How does that apology usually go? I'm sorry. And, and then it's like being told to, hug, you know, hug it out. What is, what is, that, that is the, the fastest hug in the history of hugs, because you want to get away from that person Tell them that you love them. I love you. <laughs> if we are not careful, then we simply see this as this mark that we are, are trying to meet. And, and we, 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 we kind of lump this into the other you know, habits or the other things that, that we're meant to, to be and do and look like as the church. But when we understand Paul's heart behind this prayer, we see that that simply cannot be the case, that that is not what Paul's hope for the church in Ephesus is. Anytime you read a letter of Paul's and he says something like, for this reason, you have to ask, well, what is the reason? What is the reason that Paul would pray this prayer? And if you look back up at uh, verse 1 of this same chapter, chapter 3 in Ephesus, Paul says, for this reason. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then, then there's, this, there's this digression, which Paul is, it's, I love reading Paul's letters. It gives us hope. For any of you that feel like you have a difficult time holding a train of thought, Paul is your guy. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he goes, well, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. I have already written briefly, about which I have already, already written briefly. So there's this digression. He just takes this sidestep and says, well, I want to make sure that you understand why I am writing to you, why I've prayed this, I'm praying this prayer over you. 
And, and the you, the church in Ephesus was made up of Gentile Christians, those, those who had come into the faith. And, and there, were, there were Jewish Christians there too, but those who had come into the faith and, and yet were having a difficult time wrapping their minds around what it meant to be a part of the family of God, what it meant to be the people of God. And so if you, if you go back to the, the very beginning of this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, and I love that Paul includes himself in this. He doesn't say he chose you. He chose us. Paul realized when, when in that encounter with Jesus on, on the Damascus road, he realized that there was nothing that he could bring to the table, nothing that earned him a seat at the table. And in Philippians chapter 3, he, another one of the uh, passages that we like to use for a benediction, Ephesians chapter 3, he just unpacks that. He said, everything that I once thought was of, of worth and of value, everything that I once thought I could bring to the table, I realize is, is garbage. It's less than garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, so Paul, I mean, there are times when the letters that he writes to the church, are, there's, there's a sting to it. But it's because he wants the church to be able to live fully into who the church is called to be. But he, but he never points a finger w- without including himself. In Romans, he calls himself the chief of sinners. He has a very realistic view of himself compared to the glory of God. And, and I think and maybe the church, particularly the church in America, would do well to ask for such a posture. God, would you, would you give me, would you give us a realistic view of who we are compared to the glory of your son Jesus? Because next to him we're not really anything. So Paul, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. That means he decided ahead of time that we would be adopted as his children through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So that's kind of his, where he begins with the Gentile believers in Ephesus. We've done nothing to earn our adoption. That's one of the most amazing things about adoption. A a child is not adopted because there's something about that child that has earned a parent's favor. It is merely out of the love of the parent for that child. Paul is saying, you've done nothing to earn it. It was in God's heart before the beginning of time to adopt you as his children. So he begins with that truth, and then he begins to say, this is what it means for you Gentiles. You, you who are not Jewish by birth, right? There was once a dividing wall, and in the temple there was literally a wall that divided where, where the Jewish, the people of God could be versus the non-Jewish, those who were not by birth the people of God. The dividing wall of hostility in the person of Christ has been torn down. It no longer exists. That should be challenging to us as we hear those words. Because I am afraid 
whether overtly or whether without even realizing it, we still try to put stones back in that dividing wall. And we take it upon ourselves to determine who gets to be in and who is left out. And what Paul is saying is that in Christ, our brokenness and our sin levels the playing field. And through him, that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. So he's saying, hey, guess what? You get to be a part of the church. You are a part of the family of God. Right? That would be great news in and of itself for the the Gentile Christians. That would be a great place for him to stop. But I love this. Paul is not content with them just knowing that they get to be in. Because all things being equal, and church didn't look then the way that it does now. now there, there are things that we practice in our gathering, in the, the corporate gathering. We pray together. We open God's word together. We worship together. We, we give offering together. Those things were a part of the DNA of the, the church at the very beginning. So we do those things. But the church in this time didn't look like this, this gathering of, this large gathering of people. Oftentimes it was, you know, gatherings that happened in homes and maybe there would be a, a coming together on occasion. But all things being equal, if we were to say, you know, let's assume that the church then looked like the church now, Paul is not content with simply saying, hey, good news, the dividing wall has been broken down. You get to come and be a part of the family. That's it, period. Welcome in. We're glad to have you. That's not enough for Paul. Because what happens if that's all we hear? Oh, I I get to be in? Awesome. If I get to be in, then it means I can also choose when not to be there. If I get to be in, then, then I can also choose how involved I'd like to be because I have a lot of other stuff going on in my life. So thanks for, you know, just making sure that I understand that I get to be in and, and I can be in on my own terms. Paul was not content with having people fill seats on Sunday mornings, all things being equal. That's not enough. That's not what it means to be the church. That's not what it looks like even to be the church. One of the things I read this week the authors, uh, N.T. Wright, I believe, was, was saying, you know, the, the world is going to continue to be the world. Right? The, that's, that is what the world is. There, there is an enemy who is still at work in this world. The world will continue to be what the world is. And yet we find ourselves as the church more concerned about what the world is than what the church has become. The world is going to continue to be the world. The thing that is most sad is that we are not paying attention to what the church has become. We have the answer to the illness that plagues the world. We have the answer to the brokenness that exists in the world. We have the answer to the darkness that is in the world. We have the answer to the suffering that is in the world. We have the answer, the answer, the answer to everything that plagues the world in which we live that we find ourselves disgusted with or put off by. We have the answer. But as long as we see church as something that we can be connected to or not be connected to, that we can give our time to or not give our time to, that we can get frustrated with and move on from if we feel like it, then nothing about the world is ever going to change. So Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus is born out of that desire. I don't just want you to know that you get to be in. 
Because there's so much more than that. That's just the beginning. Like that's the starting point. To say, hey, you have a place here. It is because of that. Because of the fact that you've been welcomed in. Paul then goes on to say, for this reason. I kneel before the Father. The common posture We'll say of a Jewish man, because Paul was that. The common posture of a Jewish man in prayer would have been one of standing. If you've ever seen pictures of, or if you've ever been to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you'll see Jewish men standing in front of the wall offering their prayers. It was the posture then, it is the posture now. Now we find places in Scripture where we see examples of, of a different posture, but for Paul, it exemplified something that was in his heart. Standing wasn't good enough. This posture instead of kneeling, I kneel before the Father. It's a posture of humility, born out of what Paul understands and out of his, his prayer as one who loves the church in Ephesus. For this reason, I, I humble myself and I kneel before the Father, from whom every family, that's you, that's the, the people of God that by birth are the people of God. That's everyone who's not yet a part of it and yet places where the church is beginning to spring up. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. How many of you would like to be strengthened with power? Right. If you're a dude, come on. I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Like, 99% of guys have hero fantasies, right? Maybe you're a person who chooses a seat in a restaurant based on the fact that if things break bad, you are ready. I do. I don't sit with my back to the restaurant. I like to see everything that's going on just in case. And so I, I like this prayer that I would be strengthened with power just in case. Right? If you're a mom of small children, you already have that power. We're just a squirrel trying to get a nut in your world. Like, we're just trying to keep up. We like that. I mean, we, we work to be stronger. We want to have strength. We want to have power, whether it's intellectual power, whether it's physical power, whatever. The world conditions us to think you got to be stronger, you got, you got to be faster, you got to be smarter. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's not the kind of power he's after. I pray that you would have strength, you would be strengthened in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not just about being strong for the sake of strength. It's not just about having wisdom for the sake of wisdom. It's about being strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that strengthening look like? It means that you begin to desire that more than you desire the things that the world is offering you. It means that you are in pursuit of that, what it means and what it looks like to have Jesus make his home, his tabernacle in you, in your heart, more than you are concerned with consuming the things that the world tells you are important. I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being. Paul's like, look, and he, he, he writes this in his second letter to the church in Corinth. The outwardly, we are wasting away. Like that, that begins at day one. We are, we are in this progression. We are in a trajectory toward, it, like, it's just the physical nature of our bodies. 
Yet inwardly, he says, we are being renewed day by day. Where's Paul praying this prayer from? He is under arrest, likely chained to a Roman guard. And this is one of what what we call the prison letters that Paul wrote from prison. And and his, his focus is not himself. His focus, the thing that he is burdened by is the church in Ephesus, is all the churches to which he's writing these letters from prison. And you, could you imagine like a Roman centurion? This, this, and we, you know, I've, we've, I've never seen a picture of Paul. Like there's nobody snapped a photograph of him. There's no selfies that, you know, exist of Paul. But it's believed that Paul wasn't much to look at. Like he was a kind of a small, wiry guy. Like he wasn't attractive. There wasn't anything that, you know, he wasn't a great deal to look at. And, and yet, imagine being the Roman soldier that's chained to this guy. You can't go anywhere. You are a captive audience. Like, what would it be? I mean, Paul, like, hears the, the lock click into place, and he's like, okay. Now that I have you, <laughs> let me tell you about Jesus. But this, he's under house arrest, and, and he's, you know, he's writing these letters, and then he, 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 he like, stops what he's doing and, and he gets on his hands and his, gets on his face. And begins to pray this prayer. Now, if I am the guard to whom he is chained, I'm, I'm expecting that his prayer is going to be one of, please loosen these shackles and strike this guy dead. Like, I love him, but I'm, I'm tired of being chained to this guy. No, Paul's prayer and his burden, the thing that is, is weighing on him is the church. Are the believers in Ephesus. Pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Established is a, a picture of, of building, right? A, a foundation. You, a, a home, a house is established on, on the foundation. But then rooted, there's, some, there's something more. What is it in your life that you are seeking to draw life from? There are a lot of things that we seek to draw life and, and meaning and purpose and fulfillment from. And, and we might feel it from those things for a period of time, but ultimately that well is going to run dry. There will be no more life in that soil. And Paul's prayer is that, that they would be rooted and established in the love of Jesus. You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's that word power again. You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. That's, that's an important point for us to understand. And in, in praying for the church in Ephesus and praying that they would be strengthened in such a way that they are able to begin to even scratch the surface of grasping the depth and the breadth and the height, the enormity of the love of God in Christ Jesus. This love that he has for all the Lord's holy people, that you would be able to grasp this in the context of relationship with the body. It's it's another place, I think, that we've allowed culture to influence and dictate our understanding of what it means to be someone who is loved by God. Does God love each of you uniquely? Does God know each of you individually? Absolutely. 
But when we wake up to that, when we, when we finally dare to believe that that means something for our lives, we are meant to live that out, the expression of that in the context of relationship with our brothers and sisters who are also trying to figure out what that means for their lives. God's intention was not that we would be this, this, this gathering, this community of a bunch of individuals with these siloed lives that we don't allow to touch the lives of others and we keep others at arm's length because we don't want them to come in. You know, God loves me, that's great for me. That's true and it is great for you, but that's meant to be lived out and understood in the context of relationship and of community because it's a difficult truth for us to grasp because we have an enemy that is going to continue to work against us to convince us that we are unlovely and unlovable. That that thing that you did for the tenth time, the hundredth time, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. That now you are outside of the love of God. That was it, that thing. We need people around us who will remind us, who will say, no, no. That's the voice of the enemy talking. That is not the truth of who God is. Paul uses these, these words of, of measurement not because you can, you can quantify God's love. His is simply a prayer. God, I, I pray that they would know more. I pray that they would begin to have a glimpse of, of how big this is. How enormous it is and what it means to be loved by you. Again, Paul is praying this for the church. He's not praying for himself. I love that we spent time. I love that Patty gave us the, the space to lift up prayer requests and to pray for people that we love and that we care about. And, and I, I pray that we don't relent in that. That we pray for people to know healing. That we pray for relationships to be mended. That we pray for, for blessing in a job. That we pray for that promotion. That we pray for those who are, who are finishing up their senior year and going off to college. That we pray for those who are in college and graduate. Like we should lift, we should constantly be in prayer for one another. But what, what we are, are brought to here and what we have to wrestle with is are we praying this kind of prayer in addition to whatever else we are asking on behalf of other people? If I pray for someone who is dealing with cancer to be healed of that cancer and yet they don't know the love of Jesus, the height and breadth and depth of the love of Jesus, then what have we done? Merely asked for an extension of a life in which they are trying to find meaning and purpose apart from Christ. Coupled with anything that we pray, and I, I hope that you are a people who pray bold prayers but coupled with anything that you pray for someone else. Imagine what might begin to happen if you prayed a prayer like this. Hey, I, I prayed for you recently. Oh, yeah? What'd you pray? Well, I prayed that God would, would touch that tumor, and, and, you know, whether by his mighty hand or whether by the gift of medicine, that God would heal that. Oh, thank you so much. I pray that you'd have a peace. Thank you, because it's been really weighing on me. I also prayed something else for you. Oh, really, what was the thing that you prayed? I got down on my knees and I prayed that you would know the height and breadth and depth of the love of God that is displayed for you in Jesus Christ. And I, play, I prayed that, that Jesus would make his home in you and that you would realize how big this thing is. Imagine praying prayers like that for people. 
Something begins to happen in our own hearts when we are willing to pray that kind of prayer for the lives of others. Our own hearts begin to expand because we are tapping into the heart of God in that. Sometimes I wonder if, you know, we pray for healing for someone. God knows if that person belongs to them, God knows they will be healed. There will come a day when their healing will be ultimate and it will be complete. And so maybe that's not God's chief focus in that person's life. Maybe the thing he really wants is for them to open themselves up to this love that is immeasurable and incalculable. To open themselves up and have even the beginning of an understanding of this love that you really can't understand. Because then that changes the way that they walk through their suffering. It changes the way that they speak of their suffering. It changes the way that they are in relationship with others who are suffering. They they could say, you know what, I've prayed for God to take this away, and God's at work, but I, I learned something else. Let me tell you about the depth and the breadth and the height and the width of the enormity of God's love for me and for you. For what purpose? that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Friends, whatever degree to which you know the love of Jesus, I can tell you that you have only just scratched the surface. There is more. There is so much more. And, and what we have to understand is that it's not always about feeling. We, we live in a world that places a premium on, on feeling and experience. It's not always going to be warm and fuzzy. We've talked about and we've looked at John chapter 15. And, you know, the pruning of the vine, the pruning of the branches. And sometimes... God's love is never more evident for us than when his pruning shears are in his hand. So there are times when it's not going to feel good. And and so it's not necessarily the experience that we should chase, but it's the reality. It's the still, small voice spoken over us that can transform who we understand ourselves to be and transform the way that we see this world and the people in it around us. You know, our, our youth uh, this coming weekend are taking a, a winter retreat, so I, I pray that you will join the rest of the staff in praying for, for Danae and for her leadership team and for all the students who are going. Well, what should I pray? That would be a great place to start. Pray that they, in a real and tangible way, would encounter the height and depth and breadth of the love of God and that they would begin to understand this thing that is unknowable ultimately, but that they would be so curious about what this could mean for their lives, that they will lean in in a way that they never have before. Pray that prayer. Because it changes the way that we view ourselves when we come face to face with that. I've shared this before, but I want to close with this this story, this illustration. It's from uh, Brennan Manning in his book, The Furious Longing of God. Manning talks about he uses the Song of Songs as kind of the premise for this book. And, and, and really, it's, you know, we read this between a, a lover and a beloved. But, you know, he says that 
what's, what's at the heart of that is this picture of the way that God loves us. And in his time in New Orleans, he talks about getting connected to, this, to a leper colony, essentially. And these, these were, you talk about people that were unlovely and unlovable. And, and he would go and spend time uh, there. And so he's going to spend time, uh, you know, going for a visit at the leper colony one day. And uh, one, of the, one of the sisters, one of the nuns comes running out and, and he says, she says, Father, you must come quick because Yolanda is, is dying. And he describes Yolanda. She's in her mid-30s and the disease has ravaged her. Her nose has sunken ear and in. Her ears are drooping. She only has, you know, nubs of fingers on, on, on her hands. One of the things that happens with this disease is you can't feel pain. And, and so, you, you know, it's like sometimes they would inflict wounds or, you know, you could lay your hand on a hot surface and, and burn the flesh and not know it. And so she is, she is, looks nothing like she once did. And he describes her, this picture of her as this, this vision of beauty, the kind that men and women would stop and she would catch their attention. But now she's just ravaged by this disease. And he said he always carries anointing oil with him. And so he went in to, to anoint her and, and to pray for her. He says, I, I anointed Yolanda with oil and prayed with her. As I turned around to put the top Back on the bottle of oil, the room was filled with a brilliant light. And he says, it, it had been raining outside, and so I assumed that it was the sun, you know, shining in and, and lighting up the room. And so he said, I said, thanks, Abba, for the sunshine. I bet that'll cheer her up. And as I turned back to look at Yolanda, and if I live to be 300 years old, I'll never be able to find the words to describe what I saw. Her face was like a sunburst over the mountains, like 1,000 sunbeams streaming out of her face, literally so brilliant I had to shield my eyes. I said, Yolanda, you appear to be very happy. And he, he says, with, with her slight Mexican-American accent, she said, oh, Father, I am so happy. I then asked her, will you tell me why you're so happy? She said, yes, the Abba of Jesus told me that he would take me home today. I vividly remember the hot tears that began rolling down my cheeks. And he says, after a lengthy pause, I asked just what the Abba of Jesus said. Yolanda said, he writes, come now, my love, my lovely one, come. For you, the winter has passed, the snows are over and gone, the flowers appear in the land, the season of joyful songs has come. The cooing of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Come now, my love, my Yolanda, come. Let me see your face and let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is beautiful. Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. These are the words written in the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Here's the amazing piece. Six hours later, he writes, her little leprous body was swept up into the furious love of her Abba. Later that same day, I learned from the staff that Yolanda was illiterate. She had never read the Bible or any book for that matter. I surely had never repeated those words to her in any of my visits. I was, as they say, a man undone.
the love of the Abba of Jesus, the love of the Father, is not bound by our ability to understand it. It is not bound by how lovely we think we are or how deserving or how beautiful or how acceptable we think we are. It is a love that will pierce the darkest place. It is a love that will reach into the deepest parts of who we are. And it is a love that will call us to itself. And my prayer for you as a church is that you would open yourself up to knowing the height and depth and the breadth of God's love for you. And to know that as you begin to grasp that, it is only the beginning. Stand and pray with me.